This is A View From The Ditch, I'm William Dalton. If you want to write to us, it's aviewfromtheditch at gmail.com. For this episode, I was fortunate to be joined by Independent Senator Alice Mary Higgins, who spoke to me on the topic of CETA, the free trade agreement between the European Union and Canada. Senator Higgins went into quite a bit of detail about CETA and the investor court system, and why, in her view, we should all oppose its ratification. So, Alice Mary, thanks a million for joining us. I wonder if you could start by telling us about the the current status of of CETA. Okay, so uh, CETA, it's it's the comprehensive economic trade agreement between the EU and Canada. It has been provisionally applied since 2017. So a really important judgment happened in Europe in 2017, where they said that the trade and the tariff parts, all the thing about exports and and, and tariffs of trade, that that it was an EU competency and that that could go ahead, but that the investor court protection, well, well, actually it's the investor protection mechanisms, which could be ISDS or ICS, that those parts, because they had a really significant national impact, had to be decided by each country. So what's been happening since 2017 is that all of the trade aspects of CETA are already being uh, provisionally applied. They're already happening. And the part that now requires a decision, again, is that uh, full ratification of the investor court component. And there is no timeline in this. There is no rush on this. We could spend five years or six years if we wish to further looking at this area. So there isn't actually a pressure or timeline from Europe. Lots of countries haven't decided yet, but it appeared on the agenda last December. Um, There was an attempt to kind of push the ratification vote through with just 40 minutes vote. There's a strong pushback on that. And I think there has now been some realization that far more scrutiny and consideration is needed because it would be such a significant decision for Ireland to uh, adopt a new investor court system. And uh, now the debate is really around trying to get it looked at by multiple committees um, or by one committee. So the government have suggested the EU Affairs Committee. Um, I'm on the Climate Committee and it is on our work program. Um, And it's something I will be certainly hoping to keep on our work programme. But I think other committees like the Justice Committee, for example, really would want to look at this because this is such significant implications in terms of, you know, law, rule of law and that idea of equity under the law as well. So there's a case for a number of committees looking at this issue. And um, I also think that we, we need to wait for, which I'll get to, developments outside of Ireland are changing in a way whereby the landscape is really shifting on this. Uh, There's negotiations happening at the moment around the energy charter, which is a really important uh, treaty, um, which fossil fuel companies have used a lot to slow down climate action, for example. Uh, There's debates happening and negotiations happening on the Mercosur deal, which is the trade deal between the EU and and, uh, South American countries. And so there's a whole lot happening on the outside, which I think 
are also very good reasons for Ireland to wait, uh, not to scrutinise the issue in terms of ourselves, but also to look at what's happening in the outside landscape. And the last thing I'd say on that, it's very interesting that the, the UK um, EU deal, the new trade deal, does not have investor arbitration in it. The new Chinese EU deal uh, does not have investor arbitration in it. So we're, and, and the new US, Mexico, Canada deal, which has replaced NAFTA, which you know, the old uh, trade deal there, it also has removed almost all investor arbitration. When I say arbitration, that means those kind of investor mechanisms that allow investors to sue states um, in respect of uh, where they feel they've been unfairly impacted um, by regulations and that they have unfairly impacted on their profits. So that whole space is really changing at the moment. The tide, I would say, is going out on this kind of deal. Sorry, I know that's that's the, the wider political landscape in Ireland and maybe in, in a little bit in that wider sense as well. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, I wonder if we could take a step back. And as you say, that investor court system mechanism is the bit that's been politically controversial. I wonder if you could explain why you yourself and so many civil society groups, trade unions, environmentalists are opposed to this. Yes, well, basically there's principled opposition and there's also a lot of really practical reasons for opposition. Um, it is a parallel, separate legal system that sits outside and separate to those legal systems that we have in our states and even in, within Europe, all of those kind of areas of, of both pooled and individual sovereignty that we would have. So it's a, it's a separate legal system. It's not even, it's a separate arbitration system. And it is in, intrinsically inequitable in that it can only be used by investors to take cases against states. It's not something uh, that you know, an individual can be bringing cases to or that states can bring cases to. It is specifically uh, for investors. And the arbitrators in an investor court system um, are you know, ISDS, which is Investor State Dispute Settlement Mechanism more widely. Unlike, say, judges in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in any national court or an EU court who are required to balance all areas of the law. So if a judge is looking at a case, they will look at, you know, contract law, but they'll also look at environmental law, they'll look at constitutional law, at human rights provisions. That whole balancing, really considering cases, that does not happen uh, necessarily in an investor court system because uh, there is a, a line where they say they may consider domestic law, but they're not required to. So you really have a very narrow focus of law, uh, looking simply at economic you know, compensation claims out of context of everything else that's happening. That's one of the issues. The other issue is that we don't need them. And really the argument is, why are these systems being added in? Because the case needs to be made for them. Um, if we look to Ireland, we have a really high level of foreign direct investment and we don't have uh, investor court system or ISDS at the moment. So we, you know, with the exception of the energy charter, we don't have that. So it's a really... You know, it hasn't been an obstacle to foreign direct investment. And there has been no proof that inserting an investor court system actually increases investment or increases uh, social gains. They were very much a, I would say, greedy overreach by corporate lobbyists. And, and I know my work years ago on this area, um, back in the uh, mid 2000s, was around um, when these kinds of courts were being imposed on African countries in the European partnership agreements. And it was 
a mechanism originally that was designed that when you are doing business in a country that doesn't have a stable legal system, that you would almost bring your own legal system with you. But because these courts made those decisions in a way that really favored investors and corporations, they liked them and they started putting them in lots of trade deals. But what's, that's why I was mentioning what's really significant is the trade deals that initially included these elements, like NAFTA, that North American trade deal, they're taking them out and they are moving away from them. Some of those African countries who signed trade deals with ISDS or investor court systems in them are now also actively trying to get out of those mechanisms because of the chill effect they have. Because the fact, and this is another really significant difference with a normal law, a normal court may well give a company compensation if they've been impacted negatively in, in a certain way, but they would not give compensation for your future expected profits. And that is a space uh, whereby the kinds of um, compensation awards that are being given to corporations by the ISDS mechanisms globally sometimes run into billions. So you really can look at uh, the cost of the case being so expensive, just the fact of the case happening is so expensive. The awards are potentially limitless because you're talking about future money compensation on the money you would have made in the future. Um, that that has a huge chilling effect on um, that has a huge chilling effect on legislators, and they don't maybe make the kinds of public good choices that they could. So it, it, you know, and we can talk more about that chill effect and what happens. But you know, there is there is damage done by the by the awards, but even the fact of the cases can do damage to our normal legislative process, and it can make it a little bit harder for legislators to respond. Um, uh, to areas that need new regulation. I see, yes. And, and yeah, on that idea of regulatory chill, I wonder if you could maybe give some examples of the kinds of policy areas that could be potentially affected by something like this. Sure. So regulatory chill, um, there are a few different ways that it works. We have what, you know, what they call anticipatory regulatory chill, whereby uh, governments are don't want to initiate or maybe don't make a brave choice in terms of environmental regulation, public health regulation, labor rights regulation, all of this areas. You know, when we think of, um, because they're worried cases might be taken, there's also responsive um, chill, whereby companies back, uh, countries might back down on regulation. So we've seen, for example, recently, some of the French climate change laws that got diluted because of the threat of uh, investor cases being taken against them. Uh, we saw in Colombia, for example, and I think it's a really interesting example, where uh, laws in relation to um, Uber were, were, moved, were rolled back because Uber was threatening a case. Even though Uber didn't have a very strong case, the very fact of being taken to court was in itself enough of a thing to kind of to, to push the Colombian government to kind of roll back on some of their measures uh, in relation to that company. And I, why I think that's an interesting example is the environmental area is really key. The next 10 years are the 10 years when the world needs to make radically new decisions, new policy decisions, set new standards, raise the bar in terms of environmental action if we are going to address climate change and the biodiversity crisis. But other areas are also really vulnerable, like public health. We've seen more 
about how countries sometimes really do need to act swiftly in terms of public health. And we know that uh, a very infamous example was Philip Morris, who took a case against the Australian government um, um, in relation to um, uh, packaging of cigarettes. And while Philip Morris's case wasn't successful, it delayed those new laws by a number of years. And they used the fact that they had sued Australia to intimidate a number of other countries out of bringing in regulations around cigarettes. So again, on the public health area, it's really notable that a huge number of public health organizations, organizations interested in heart disease, um, organizations working on cancer and so forth, they have really been calling, uh, crying out against ISDS and ICS mechanisms. Um, really interesting to learn. But the, the reason the Uber example was interesting was because the gig economy and areas where we have unregulated or underregulated work. And one area I really care about, for example, is care work. Care work in Ireland, which we realize in the pandemic is so important, is really underregulated. And those are areas where if we try to kind of introduce new and better standards, there could be a fear of cases being taken. And that's, um, that's a problem. If we have anything that kind of pushes us to a standstill moment on an, our environmental, public health um, um, and workers' rights laws, um, it means that we as politicians and as legislators are not responding in the way we should to new challenges. It's a almost, uh, I, I've heard it described as a standstill effect as well, where countries are they, they feel they can protect the regulations they already have, but they're scared to improve or to do things better. That's kind of what the chill effect does. And there are just multiple examples of it across the world of policies getting diluted or rolled back um, out of fear of these kinds of courts. I might just one thing to mention. I, it's something I've been thinking about a lot. We've seen really good new cases in terms of the environment recently. We've seen, uh, you know, Climate Case Ireland. We saw the Urgenta case. And we've seen all around the world, you know, indigenous groups and others beginning to use national courts and international courts to really hold governments to account on environmental standards and, and what they've already signed up to. So something I also worry about is that if we bring in new corporate courts, which have come with huge charges, that they could be used to kind of undermine that positive legal imperative that we're getting um, on, in terms of the environmental cases that are taking. Okay, and, and just yeah, on that idea of you, in, in, the investor court system, is it merely the investor court system? The, 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 in other words, the dispute resolution mechanism that you take issue with, or is it the the provisions of, of CETA itself? Okay, so there were a lot of problems with the CETA uh, it, itself. It was it was called the new generation, but I don't like to call it that now because I think of them as old generation and the new generation are these new deals that are coming through in the last two years. But that there were a number of elements that were a real problem um, in CETA, too many to go into. But one problem was the ratchet clause, which made it much harder. If you had an area of public service that moved to privatization, it made it a lot harder to roll that back to public delivery again. That's something I didn't like. And another really interesting example was what they called the negative list system whereby CETA did this really unusual thing where normally if you're negotiating with somebody, you know, you put things on the table and you discuss those. With CETA, everything that wasn't explicitly taken off the table was assumed to be included. And it's really interesting. 
So you had to, countries had to put in these lists of reservations, which is literally the list of what they're taking off the table. And Ireland put in just three pages of reservations, uh, while other countries like Germany and, and Denmark put in over 20 pages each. So for me, this is a real example of why we did, should have had more scrutiny and we should have had more debate. And we didn't have any uh, Iraqis scrutiny of what should or should be not taken on or put on the table or taken off the table. In fact, the only debate that there has been in the Iraqis on CETA was my private member's bill in 2016 as a new senator. Um, so there really hasn't been discussion of it. And that's an example of what we need to, to, to why we need to pay a lot of attention at this last stage because you know all the trade elements are there already but there and, and and even the negative list isn't something that we can you know easily roll back on or add to but there is still a lot to be won in trying to improve the situation um before um any kind of ratification and i, did, I could give example of that in terms of so the investor court system, again, I'm against it in principle because it is a parallel legal system. But even for those who don't share my full, my full objection to the investor court system, um, there could be improvements and there need to be improvements to the investor court system. Right now, one of the really bad aspects of it is uh, that the arbitrators get paid per day. Um, they get paid a base wage, it's very low, 24,000, I think. And then they get paid a very large amount per day but only corporations can take, or investors can take cases. So you're creating a perverse incentive whereby, in a way, investors are the clients that the arbitrators need to encourage in order to finance their own work. So there's a whole right. problem there. That's an issue which could be addressed through the CETA Joint Committee. That's an example of something that at a minimum, we should be looking to fix that. And also the European Court of Justice ruling in 2019 which found that CETA is not, you know, in itself illegal. It did note that small and medium companies are really disadvantaged compared to large corporations when it comes to the investor court system and that changes needed to be made to the investor court system so that uh, the costs didn't mean that these were basically just a tool for huge corporations. So there's a lot of improvements that could be made to the ICS. I'm still against it in principle, but there's space there. And there's also leverage that we need to be using in terms of with Mercosur, the deal isn't even provisionally applied yet or signed up to yet. So we should be really scrutinizing that and using the fact that we haven't signed Lita, CETA to make them listen to us about fixing that deal and improving that deal and making sure we don't make those same mistakes again. And what about those who are saying that the, the problems with CETA have already been addressed? Like there was this editorial in the Irish Times a few weeks ago where they said it's a battle already won and uh, that, you know, there have been these reforms and that, you know, it's, it's, it's a duty on people who are against it to propose what the alternative mechanism for interpretation would be. First of all, it's not already over. Uh, I was told when I brought my private members bill in 2016 um, that... CETA was already finished and there was no point having a discussion of it. We're now five years later. It's still not over. And what was interesting in 2016, I, in my motion, I said, the landscape is changing. They're going to have to treat the trade part and the investor court part separately. That's what I said in 2016. The 2017 judgment proved me to be correct. And I'm saying again that the landscape is changing and it is changing. But it also, 
we don't have to propose alternative mechanisms for investor arbitration because we already have a totally functioning court system. We have had foreign direct investment in Ireland at huge levels for 20 or 30 years with no problems at all and without an investor court system or an ISDS system. So that is not necessary. And also trade deals don't have to include investor arbitrations. Like I said, the UK EU deal does not have that. Uh, the, uh, EU, the new China EU deal does not have that. And really interestingly, as I said, the US and Canada, both of which have really you know, sued each other back and forth with ISDS, both of them made a point of making sure they weren't vulnerable to investor arbitrations. Because when you think about it, when we sign a deal you know, between Europe and Canada, it's fine that there would be arbitration if Europe has a concern, mm -hmm. if Canada has a concern. But what investor arbitration mechanisms are doing is just giving a whole pile of extra powers and rights to corporations who aren't bound by anything in the, in the you know, they don't have any responsibilities in this deal, but what they are getting is a whole lot of extra rights. So it's kind of no, none of the, none of the work, uh, none of the pain and just purely a mechanism for gain. And, and that's really important to remember when we've heard, okay, the Paris Agreement and climate and environment and labor rights are mentioned within the CETA text. They, they're actually mentioned, but they have no uh, legal strength. And there was a, a, a little, you know, a, a few paragraphs that were added about the Paris Agreement as an addendum. But what, again, they talk about is the, e, the EU and Canada cooperating on the Paris Agreement. They say nothing about investors. And investors are not required, and the arbitration courts are not required to share any aspirations about the environment or labor rights or anything else. They have one very clear job, which is to look at whether and how much compensation should be given to investors. And that is their narrow focus. And it is that narrow focus that's the problem. So I would say to people, it's not at all over. And, and maybe the last thing I'd say is just to say, we can improve this and change it. Um, and we can also negotiate a new and better Canadian EU um, treaty. We can do that while we provisionally apply. Because the good thing about provisional application is if during provisional application, we start talks on a better treaty, on a better agreement, um, and then we decide we want to switch to that, we can do that really quickly. Whereas if we complete ratification, there is a 20-year sunset clause. So we will not be able to change this for 20 years once we sign it. We'll not be able to exit it for 20 years. And it will require every EU country to agree to exit it. So even mm -hmm. Ireland won't be able to exit it on its own. And as a real example of that, on that energy charter that I mentioned, Russia provisionally applied the energy charter for over a decade. And then when they left, they just had to give 60 days notice. Whereas Italy, having ratified it, when they gave notice, had to give 20 years of a um, what they call a zombie clause where it continued to apply. So that's a little bit of a sense of why there's a lot to lose by rushing ratification. And there's actually quite a lot to gain by staying in this provisional application space and having the kind of detailed discussions we should have had throughout the last five years. Well, I suppose that raises the question then, why is there this pressure to ratify it and where is that coming from? I really believe uh, that it is a corporate lobby. I think it is coming very much from 
a number of, um, we see the very, you know, there are, there are huge gains for corporations in this. And I think they're pushing this because the tide is changing. They see that now France, for example, are talking about how Europe should exit the energy charter. Uh, they've, seen, they've seen this mechanism disappearing around the world because people are pulling away from it. They see the tide going out on these kinds of investor courts. They're seeing that they're getting recognized as a, basically a toxic add-on mm -hmm. to trade deals that trade deals can exist perfectly well without and that only benefit corporations. And as the mood changes and as these new trade deals are beginning to exclude these mechanisms, they really want to nail down uh, the measures of the past. So they're really keen to tie us in for the next 20 years or more to that now outdated model of investor arbitration. And they recognize that the window for that is shrinking. I think that that's where the lobby and the push is coming from. There are no economic imperatives on this. There is no financial you know, or economic gain for states or for citizens in this. So it is purely a matter, I think, of a very strong corporate lobby saying, this is a thing we'd like. And um, they were in a very strong position to say that in 2008. Uh, I think that the world has reconfigured its priorities now and we are um, citizens want to make sure that their voices are going to be heard and that their voices will carry priority with elected representatives. So I think there's a pushback. Right. I, I, yes. And, and on that, what uh, what comes next? I see that uh, you yourself have uh, managed to get the ICS on the agenda of the Joint Oropolis Committee on Climate Action. Yes, and I think it's on the, the Climate Action Committee. I know there's been talk of other committees looking at it. The Justice Committee, I think, will be really important because it's where we can really tease out exactly how these arbitration courts work and, you know, and, and why they're not better than our national courts. So I think the Justice Committee could be doing really important work. I think the Health Committee has a lot to look at in this. But I would say as well, we're not in a hurry. This is a pandemic right now. We have a huge workload. We have so much we need to do uh, in terms of, you know, the climate bill. We have so much actual legislation we need to be pushing and pass that we cannot go ahead and ratify without scrutinizing. But I also think that, to be honest, that scrutiny should be happening later towards the summer or in the early autumn, when we will also then have the advantage of having seen what's happening around the Mercosur and the Energy Charter Treaty. So it needs to be scrutinized. It needs to be scrutinized from all the different perspectives that affect Irish society and Irish legislation. Um, and also the question needs to be asked, why are we rushing it? Why not next year? Why not the year after? And, and I think it's precisely um, because if we look at it next year and the year after, I think that the landscape will have shifted further and this will be even more clearly a regressive and outdated step to take. I think anybody who's interested in anything <laughs> should look to this area because it is important and it seems very far away from lobbying on an issue in your local area or, or caring about a particular environmental or health issue, but it's exactly so that we don't have something that's pushing against that kind of citizen action on, on local and national issues. That's why we need to make sure we don't um, uh, create a new hostage to fortune. 
in terms of what's next, I think what's next is that more and more people are making it clear that they want their voices to be heard. If it's on environmental issues, if it's on public health issues, if it's around, um, you know, any area of life that we try to legislate for, that they want to make sure that their voices and their opinions now and in the future aren't going to be undermined by a fear of a corporate compensation case or, or by a kind of invisible uh, hostage to fortune uh, in terms of those courts. And there is an intergenerational justice piece to this as well, because, you know, those youth activists now who are marching on climate, we don't want to have a situation where they get to be legislators like me in five years time or 10 years time, but we have tied their hands by introducing um, investor court systems that are going to limit their policy options or not limit because they will be always able to make the policy uh, changes. I mean, that the right to regulate is a bit of a, a red herring. You can always regulate, but that their regulation would be limited or chilled by a potentially huge cost that we've unnecessarily created. And that intergenerational justice piece is really important. The 20 year sunset clause doesn't just affect this government, it affects the next four or five governments into the future. And that's why I think everyone of every age, whoever thinks they might want to shape a policy in Ireland, should be interested. And I think increasingly they are. So fundamentally, it's a, it's a, dem it's a question of democracy for you. It is a question of democracy, and it is a, a matter of having responsive legislative, uh, resp responsive policymakers and decision makers who can respond authentically to the genuine concerns of citizens and not have that come with a big price tag attached. It's literally, you know, we're racing against time on these issues like climate change. Why would we turn that race into an obstacle course? And that's what we're doing if we put in a whole new court system for countries to navigate uh, when they bring in those new regulations. Okay. Um, well, Alice Mary Higgins, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. Thank you. That's it from us this week at A View from the Ditch. I want to thank our guest today, Alice Mary Higgins. If you want to write to us, it's a view from the ditch at gmail.com. And our theme music, as always, was performed by Irla O'Donnell and Natalie Nicasaja. Thanks for listening.